Hi, I'm Mark Anielski. I'm the author of The Economics of Happiness and my new book, An Economy of Well-Being. Welcome to my Economy of Well-Being podcast. I believe the most important aspiration in life is well-being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I mean the original Greek definition, which literally means well-being of your soul or well-being of spirit. I also believe we have an opportunity to change the consciousness of our world by rediscovering the true meaning of words like wealth, which literally comes from the Old English, meaning the conditions of well-being. In my podcast, I am joined by some amazing guests and elders to talk about the development of a new economy based on well-being. I wrote about these ideas in my first book, The Economics of Happiness, and in my new book, An Economy of Well-Being, which explores stories and examples of how the new economy of well-being is emerging in our world. In these podcasts, you'll learn what you can do in your personal life, your business, and in your community to incorporate well-being into all decisions. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and feel more hopeful about the future. You can learn more about my book, An Economy of Well-Being, and my previous book, The Economics of Happiness, on my website, economyofwellbeing.com. That's economyofwellbeing.com. You can purchase my book on Amazon or from your favorite bookstore. I hope you have a wonderful life and day. Dakota Cohen is my next special guest on an Economy of Wellbeing podcast. Dakota Cohen is one of Canada's youngest and most innovative pioneering permaculture farmers. Dakota, along with his family, farm about 250 acres of prime agricultural land just east of Pinoca, Alberta, near Red Deer Lake. They practice a form of land stewardship called permaculture. Permaculture is a set of design principles centered around whole systems thinking, simulating or directly utilizing the patterns and resilient features that are observed in nature. Permaculture is a philosophy of working with rather than against nature, looking at the interaction of plants and animals and all their functions rather than treating an area from a basis of single production systems, which has been the basis of our industrial agricultural systems for decades. Dakota was born, raised, and now helps steward Cohen Farms using these permaculture principles. The Cohen family has been transforming their 250-acre farm into an agroecological oasis since 1988. Their story began in 1988 when the Cohen family could no longer ignore the declining health of their land, their animals, their family, and their community. They decided to eliminate all chemical fertilizers and biocides and adopted permacultural principles. Today, Dakota, along with his parents, continue that tradition. And with the addition of permaculture design and holistic management, their 250-acre award-winning farm is proud to be a part of a growing regenerative agriculture revolution that is healing the planet and its people. Dakota holds a degree or certificate in permaculture design as well as a holistic management certificate, and he is a Red Seal certified carpenter. When he's not busy farming, Dakota works to empower others with the tools and resources to design, implement, and manage resilient living systems that are earth restorative. Dakota spoke with me today about how he envisions permaculture being the basis of not only a new era in growing food and healing our bodies, but also as a model for the economy a platform for building an economy of well-being. 
Welcome uh, Dakota Cohen to an economy well-being podcast. Uh, we happy to have you on the show and talking about what you love to do, which is permaculture, um, large-scale permaculture uh, on on a large acreage in your family's farm in Alberta. And so, welcome to the show, Dakota. Thanks for having me on, Mark. You're welcome. Well, tell us a little bit about what is. Uh, what is permaculture and why should we care about permaculture as a alternative way of tending the land versus industrial agriculture or any other approaches? Great question. So permaculture is, is a uh, kind of a, a portmanteau of, of two different words, uh, first being permanent and the second being agriculture. And, you know, it's in the entire goal of, of the, the philosophy and, and you know methods behind permaculture are are just that is, is how do we create uh, a permanent agriculture so that we can create uh have a permanent culture for for people and mm. and the you know, the the concept was developed in the early 1970s by two uh, incredible fellows by the name of bill Mollison and david holmgren down in Australia after, you know, they, they had both kind of independently been doing research into the, the shortcomings of, of the you know, industrial re- agricultural revolution that, that had happened, you know, after the second world war. And, um, you know, th- th- that was about the time when, when there was, there was really good signs that, that this, uh, you know, panacea that was promised to us in the Green Revolution just wasn't all it was cracked up to be. You know, we started to have, you know, terrible soil loss. Uh, right. There were, you know, starting to see uh, a lot of about diversity loss. We were starting to lose uh, a lot of habitat for, for different organisms. Water quality problems were starting to creep up. And um, and so even you think about that, that was, that was 50 years ago, just about, uh, you know, back then there were still signs enough for for people to start asking is you know is there is there another way that we can we can feed clothe and, and shelter ourselves right <clears throat> and so basically they they you know these two guys and a bunch of other people started answering that asking that question and and their the whole premise is that you know we in order to answer that question we need to look at natural systems because the you know there's another you know term that that was coined many years after permaculture uh was established but in my mind they're they're one of the same and that word's is uh, biomimicry right which is essentially the you know the the study of of natural systems and natural you know organisms to identify useful patterns that can be applied to solve problems that we're facing, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the useful expressions I've, I've heard to kind of put that into context is that, uh, you know, when you're trying to develop a new product or a, a new solution is usually, usually you would, you would do a bunch of research and development and testing and, and science. And so it's like the, the, the analogy is, you know, the mother nature has, has had, you know, three and a half billion years of research and development behind her. Right. And so why are we trying to reinvent the wheel 
when when all these other organisms, plants, animals, even entire ecosystems have evolved to you know fit uh, into the you know all the the complex problems that we have in our world today, they found ways of adapting that that work that are sustainable that are regenerative, and and all we need to do is to look to those natural patterns to uh, answer some of the questions that we're struggling with today, which are mainly how do we how do we feed clothes and shelter ourselves. Right. And so, you know, we've talked about, I actually know Janine Benyus, who's the, one of the authors of biomimicry uh, mm-hmm. and the guild. So in, mm-hmm. a, in a sense, from an economic perspective, we're saying we want to, in a sense, mimic nature, which is already a perfect design. And uh, how can we do that in an economy, an economic model, which is um, pretty much narrowly focused on growth uh, for growth's sake. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how permaculture sort of differs, um, maybe not so subtly, um, with the kind of growth paradigm we have uh, as a dominant paradigm in our economic models? Uh, absolutely. And, and so, <clears throat> you know, p- part of what, what, um, what started the, the Green Revolution and, and the Industrial Agricultural Revolution was it started after the, the first and second world wars because prior to that, the entire world was basically was was using permaculture, mm. um, right? And, or, or or at least they were they were pretty darn close to it. You know, the, the, there might not have been a like a, a, a system systems approach or a process um, that had you know like permaculture is today, where you can apply it you know into any. Uh, any place in the world, but all of these, these, you know, individual cultures all over the planet had, had, had evolved out of the context that they, they had lived in for thousands of years and developed, you know, really good ways of, of providing for their food, shelter and, and, and clothing and, and basic needs. But after the first and second world war was, was when we had started to develop you know, other technologies, mainly fossil fuels. Um, uh, but also the first and second world war started, um, uh, you know, a lot of the, that was kind of the, the first couple of dominoes that got kicked over that, that started this, this endless growth cycle that right. I kind of stuck into. And, and, um, but, but also, uh, you know, uh, the, they started that growth cycle in the economy and they, they were huge booms for, for industry and, and, you know, created a, a huge amount of prosperity, uh, you know, in, in, in North America and, and as well as, you know, for the countries that didn't, didn't lose the wars, but they, uh, but after the wars were done, you know, there was all this industry and, and, uh, you know, infrastructure that had been developed to, to create, you know, the bombs and the tanks and the, and the nerve gases uh-huh. involved in warfare. Uh-huh. And, and interestingly enough, during that, uh, you know, during the, the second, first and second world war, other people also noticed patterns. Uh, for example, you know, wh- wherever they sprayed their mustard gas, uh, the, the vegetation died. Mm. Wherever, wherever they dropped bombs, the vegetation got really rampant with growth the next year in the springtime. Mm. And, and they also noticed that, holy crap, these tanks can sure pull a lot. And, and a lot of the soldiers in the, in the war were, were, you know, farm boys from, mm-hmm. from, back home and they said man this is these are a hell of a lot better than horses you know, <laughs> i can just imagine how much land i could farm if i had you know one of these one of these tanks to to take back with me and so 
you know, after the World War, there was, the, you know, the, the economy was starting to slow down again and people kind of already got sucked into that growth paradigm. And there was all these tools sitting around that nobody was using anymore. And we, as opposed to using them to, to kill each other, uh, we, we turned them on the land. And, and that was what kind of spawned the Industrial Agricultural Revolution, the Green Revolution, is the, the bombs became fertilizer, the nerve gases and the mustard gases became the precursors to our pesticides. Yeah. And the, tank, the tanks became our tractors. Wow. I've never heard that told that way. And that is a fantastic <laughs> story. And, and of course, fertilizer being based on petroleum products. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so we took, uh, we took warfare technology and applied it to agriculture. Exactly. Um, and so we have a, a war-based um, agricultural industry globally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and 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 that's a, that's that's exactly what it is. And and you, if you want any more, you know, proof of this is just open any any kind of industrial agricultural magazine or newspaper, and you will see full page ads that uh, you know talking about the uh, you know the newest herbicide. It'll be like incinerator or, uh, <laughs> or tor- torpedo or lance or uh, or, or roundup. Or, yeah, round, Roundup or, or all these names and, 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 the, and the pictures behind them will be of, of this idea of like it's a, it's a battle. We're in, we're in a fight against nature because nature is, is trying to do one thing and we don't want her to do that. And so we're going to make it do something else. And Nature's the enemy. Wow. And, and, and it's, it's, it's very combative. And, and, um, and so that, like, you, you take that and, you, and you, if you contrast that with, with permaculture is, is that the major difference is that we um, – we, we don't see nature as our enemy. We see it as our biggest ally and, and we're not trying to fight it. We're trying to work with it. Right. And, we're, rela- we're relational with the land as indigenous exactly. people have been. Exactly. We were probably for 10,000 years and yeah. it was not for the last 120 years. Uh, it's quite remarkable. This little window is rather small. Um, it is it is and and so you know like all these things kind of teamed up together to to get us in the situation that we're in right now and it's mm. it really is quite quite troubling and i think this is why so many people are 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 you know the the warning signs started you know when, when was silent spring rachel carlson's that was in the 1964 i think or yeah, it was, that was 64 yeah so like, yeah. you know that was in the, a few years after that 19 1971 or 72 was when permaculture which was basically how do we create a, a systemized approach to working with natural systems and, and, and mimic them, mimicking them. Mimicking them. And, yeah. and, and listening to how plants uh, communicate. Uh, I know as a forester, you know, there's now more evidence that plants actually are talking to each other in the forest. Absolutely. Uh, and it's quite remarkable. We, we know very little really. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's the, the beauty of this is that one of the, you know, one of the other um, kind of patterns you can look for in the differences between industrial agriculture and, and, and the permaculture agriculture is that is the amount of humility that mm-hmm. that you know the um, everything to do with industrial agriculture is 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 very precise and um, and you know confident and in, in, in my, my opinion very arrogant. It's like, arrogant. Like, yes, arrogant. Yeah. Versus versus with you know, these permaculture systems, just like you just said, it's like we actually don't, we we know nothing. You know, we we've we been here, nothing. we've been here for a, a blink, and for us to come in and say, you know what, trees aren't all that important. We we don't need that, or or this species, you know, it has no value. Or, you know, 
you know, like mosquitoes they serve no purpose. So let's just spray eradicate them. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just eradicate them. And, and we have, we have no idea what we're doing. We're, we're, we're basically pulling blocks out of the Jenga tower, you know, like, cake <laughs> and, and, uh, and we're getting to the point where it's about to fall over. Right. Right. And whereas, you know, permaculturists are just like saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we have no idea what we're doing. And, and if anything, we should, we shouldn't be pulling blocks out. We should be trying to figure out how we can put our own blocks kind of back on top of the system and, and, and shore up the, the weaknesses. And, and, um, so uh, yeah. that's, fan- that's fantastic. That's, that gives me a very clear image. So tell us a little bit about Cohen farms, your, your parents, uh, why and your, your little David against this behemoth Goliath with juggernaut, <laughs> you know, this tank kind of economy uh, that just keeps churning along. And here you are trying to, uh, you know, put a stick in the spokes of this, this, you know, this, this giant momentum. Mm-hmm. How are you, how are you doing and how are you making your own business case that this approach is actually, uh, is better, let's say for a, for Alberta, better for us. Yeah, great question. So, just you know, a bit of background story about our, our farm is you know, in in the early 1980s. Uh, in my uh, so my, my dad in in his lifetime, he he and and cause he farmed with his his grandfather. Right. Um, I'm I'm fourth generation on the, on the right. land that we're farming right now, and and so in it, between my grandpa and my dad and my and myself we basically went from um, a, a permaculture style agriculture where it was mm-hmm. very, yeah. very diverse, very integrated, very much, um, you know, kind of tr- uh, trying to work with, with the land there, you know, my, my grandfather used horses and things like that. And then in, in his lifetime, my grandfather's life or my father's lifetime, they, they went into using the, the machines of war on the land. Right. Right. And they, they had, they had hog barns, they had feedlots, um, mm. Uh, they, yeah, you know, they, they were using all the fertilizers and all the, the herbicides and everything like that. And then in the, in the 1980s, <clears throat> my dad started his own farm just just down the the road from from where he, where he grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know met my mother and and it was around it was in 19 it was 1988. Um, the my mom got uh, she was walking out to the the tractor one day. My dad was out in a field spraying. Um, and she she was carrying out his lunch to him, <clears throat> and you know she parked the vehicle by the side of the road and 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 uh, you know waved waved to him to stop. He was out in the middle of the field, and so he you know stopped the tractor, turned the sprayer off, and she walked out to to meet him because you don't want to drive across where you've sprayed and trampled the field down. Right. And it wasn't very, wasn't very far, but by the time she got to the tractor, she had almost uh, fainted. <clears throat> wow! And uh, you know my my mother was always very you know. It, intuitive and, and just you know there's a bit of cognitive dissonance when you when you're when you look at a package and there's a skull and crossbones on it and <laughs> you're using that to spray in the field but but at the same time you know you got these scientists in the government saying oh no no it's totally fine and, and it, it breaks down in the rain after a few days and and so it's like all right well that'll be okay but when when you when you have when when you have those reactions your body and like you you almost pass out from from breathing this stuff in mm-hmm. um that was the first warning sign. And, and the next year they quit cold Turkey. So they, they, they put away the bombs and the nerve gas and, and they never looked back. <clears throat> wow. Now so, that, so that was, that was 30 years ago this year. 
So just back up a bit. Uh, where are you located? Um, and, yeah. and second question, your, presumably your great-grandfather was one who came to Alberta or, or maybe before that. And maybe just, just a little bit of that story. But where are you located? And, uh, sure. So we're, uh, our, our farm is, is located near uh, Farintosh, Alberta. Okay. Uh, we're about an hour and a half you know, south of, of Edmonton and just a couple hours uh, north of, of Calgary. Okay. Uh, we live in Camrose County. Right and yeah, my uh, my my great grandfather, um, um, actually, well, my great great grandfather moved to this area, and you know we we have a picture of, of him and his his uh, his family living in a in a sod house, basically <laughs> cut into the side of a hill. Yeah, like my grandmother did in Saskatchewan. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so that like that sod house was we don't own that land anymore, but it's like just one quarter section over from us. And then, and then my great grandfather, uh, my my brother lives uh, on that quarter now. Oh. And um, and then you know my 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 grandfather lives right next to us, and we still farm land that 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 he's he's owned. And so we we've, we've been in this this kind of Farintosh area for wow, for, you know, probably a hundred and hundred and fifty years. I don't know the exact number, but and but, and where did where did your family originate? Uh, my. Uh, Kind of all over the all over the place, but mainly in, in Europe and in kind of in kind of the Scandinavian countries. So you have Scandinavian roots. Yeah. Cool. Like Swedish, Danish. 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 So you were you're basically descendants of the Vikings, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, like, it's the, it's the the Vikings on my dad's side and the, the <laughs> Scottish Highlanders on my mom's side. So that's why you're so fierce. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. Yeah, that's yeah. probably has something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so tell me about your um, like the business model. So how many acres or hectares are you farming, and and what are you producing? And for sure, yeah. So we 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 currently farm two hundred and fifty acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my parents own a quarter section. We rent approximately another hundred acres from from my grandfather, and and. Uh, um, you know, just coming back a bit to the, to my folks is when they, when they stopped, um, when they went organic in, in 1988, um, you know, this is, this is very, very early. Like this is before I was even born. Right. This is, right. This is five or six years before I was even born. So, so how old are you now? I'm, I'm 26 now. You're just a baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, I mean, really like most of the, the work that, that, that has been done as farmers has had nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm really just <laughs> coming in at the, at the very end. And, and, um, but anyways, when my parents made the the switch, they, they, uh, there was no market for organic. Like this is, you couldn't buy organic in the store. Like it was very, very early on. No, nobody was on board with this stuff at the time. And there was no science to back us up. It was just like, there was a c- couple people in our community within like a hundred kilometers of us that had, had, had the same situations. There's a few other farmers in our area that had also gotten sick and, and, and stopped cold Turkey. Um, but it was like, we were, we were on the super fringe and, um, you know, like, again, put this into perspective. Like we didn't, the internet wasn't created until like the nineties. Right. Like, right. Right. Like, the 90s. like there, there was, there was no way you could go and research. Like, how do you, how do you follow <laughs> There was there was nothing in at least in our area, right? The, um, my folks really really struggled for for the first couple of years trying to figure out how to, you know, how do you how do we not use these 
the, these tanks and these 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 bombs and these nerve gases, mm-hmm. which they're, they're, they work really well mm-hmm. for a while. <laughs> and, and yeah, in, in terms of in terms of their ability to to create yield and, and, to, and yes. to, to to fight nature, they're yeah, very. We've, yeah, we've very seen the yield curves of Alberta. They continue to have shown impressive growth, but. Totally. And, and that, that's a whole other conversation that I mean, we can get into later about, you know, quality versus quantity. But uh, anyway, so they, they struggled for, for, you know, basically 20 years trying to figure out what kind of crops to grow. And, and, and you know, they, they, mainly, they mainly tried to sell into the commodities market um, for organics, which was just starting to get going. But they got, they got screwed left, right and center by, um, you know, they would have signed contracts to grow crops for other companies and you know the you know the day they were combining they'd get a, a call saying sorry we you know the market fell apart and we can't we can't give you your money and and it was just thing after thing after thing and and um they used to sell organic certified organic pigs to uh, another producer and same thing happened there they well, halfway through the contract they, they the other company pulled out and and they lost all their their money and they had, had no market for it because it was like how do you there was no internet, so you couldn't you couldn't direct market. There was no there was no demand for it locally. Uh-huh. And the only place you could sell the stuff was was you know in, in another country basically. And and those early early companies because the market was so volatile, it it um, it was very very unstable. And so they they struggled for years to figure out what to kind of produce that that would allow them to to you know farm look after the land that was in alignment with their values. And eventually they settled on you know, making hay. And in selling hay to, to originally it was certified organic dairies. Eventually there was none of those in the area either. And so then they just started making hay and selling it to people who had horses because that was the only really market that you could, you could do it to, to make a living. And, and uh, that's what they did for 15, 20 years was, was make hay and, and sell it to folks with horses. Um, now the, the problem with that is, is a lot of organic farmers are starting to figure out now is that, that, that was really hard on the soil. It mines the organic matter and the minerals from the soil because you're removing, you know, five to 10,000 pounds of organic matter per acre per year, mm. selling it off the farm. And so it's, it's literally a mine, um, but you're using the plants to dig out the, the nutrients and the minerals as opposed to using machinery. And so that kind of around would have been 10 years ago. No, it was, yeah, 10 years ago in 2007, 2008, my folks decided to sell, subdivide the farm, sell it. And because um, they, they were just, they were, they, you know, they weren't sure what else to, to do anymore. And, and I was the youngest kid of six and, and everybody else was gone from the home. I was the last kid left. And, and they were basically, they, 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 they subdivided the home, home yard, all the barns, all this stuff. And they were going to, we moved away for a year and with the plan was to come back and, and just kind of start from fresh and figure out what we're going to do from there. Mm. And because it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't working very well. And, and, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, I always wanted to, I always knew I wanted to be a farmer. It was like, it's the only thing I ever wanted to do. And, but, you know, seeing the struggles that my parents went through financially, trying to make a, a go of, it's like, it's like they were, their refusal to, to destroy the land uh, put them at such a financial disadvantage that it 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 was really detrimental to their to their quality of life. And even though we had a great life growing up, it was very stressful on on them. And and 
you know, as a kid growing up and seeing that, it was just like, I was never told directly that I should never be a farmer, but it was, it was, it was very strongly implied that if you wanted to have a good quality life, you wouldn't be an organic farmer. Right. Right. It was just too bloody hard to fight this machine and, and try to make a go of it. And so, you know, when I, when it was my time to leave home, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I decided I was, you know, going to go be a carpenter because that was the only other thing I knew how to do. All my brothers and my dad are also carpenters. And so I went and got my ticket and by uh, around that time, I finally, I started to see the warning signs too in the larger kind of culture and, and you know, finally got out of, out of high school and had enough time to think for myself. And, and I just, I saw the writing on the wall. It was like, we are headed for a, a cliff and, and, you know, there's very few people that are, are doing anything about it. And it's particularly in our, in our community. And I just, I said to health and I'm, I'm coming back to the farm and I'm going to like, come hell or high water, I'm going to try to make a, try to find a way to make, to make this work financially. And so that was, I came back to the farm full time six years ago. And, and I haven't, apart from doing a bit of education stuff and a little bit of, you know, construction here on the, on the side, a little bit, my, uh, most of my income has has come from the farm. Mm -hmm. And and so basically now, and I'll, I'll, kind of we'll talk a bit about how we've developed some of those systems but right now we sell uh grass-fed beef milk-fed pork pasture-raised eggs uh we've started some kind of perennial fruit and uh and nut orchards or forest gardens where we we harvest uh you know 10 to 12 different kinds of of berries that all grow on our farm and we we sell those as as frozen kind of berry mixes that are incredibly nutrient dense and Mm. we also make I've started to sell our own uh, tea, herbal teas that that uh, are are made from some of the leaves of some of those bushes that are were you know, traditionally used by the indigenous people of, of North America and you know, other places in the world. Right. And so uh, those are the those are the, the the primary kind of products that we have for sale on the farm. But but the other piece that's that's makes us kind of unique is is that we you know, part of, uh, part of, of trying to mimic nature is that you have to, you have to, you have to be an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like nature is, is, there's no monocultures anywhere um, that, like on the planet because it's, it's not efficient at, at uh, it's not efficient or it's, it's not stable. And so right. we all, we also produce all of our own feed for our animals. So we, we grow all of our own hay and we grow all of our own grain, or at least that's our goal. This year we had a, a drought and we had to buy a bit of grain in, but most years, our farm produces everything our farm needs to, to, to support itself, except for a few inputs. Uh, we still use a, a little bit of fossil fuels, mainly uh, like diesel. Uh, we use about uh, one to two gallons of diesel per acre. Right. Like on average. And there's you know a few parts here and there. And we, we purchase in livestock minerals and salt. Apart from that, everything else is, is, is produced on the farm. Because that's, that's part of what... what permaculture's goal is is to have these kind of our farms are super organisms or or uh, ecosystems that uh, every every uh, yield that the that the farm has is used by the farm itself and everything that the farm needs <clears throat> it can it can somehow gather that from from within itself and there's very little energy exchange from outside and so to, to put that into perspective you know our farm uses you know one to two gallons of diesel fuel per acre, per acre on average to, to grow all of our own grain, all of our own, um, hay, uh, that you compare that to, you know, the farm across the field from us, 
if if you apply uh, nitrogen fertilizer at the recommended rate for any crop in the world, uh, the uh, say it's a hundred pounds per acre for for you know wheat or something like that. If you apply a hundred pounds per acre, that's the equivalent of a hundred gallons of diesel per acre. Wow! In terms, in terms of energy, incredible. <clears throat> now and and to to now to put that into perspective even further is that is that the amount of energy that you would use to fertilize that crop uh, cancels out the calorific value of the crop itself just just with the nitrogen fertilizer so say you get you know a million calories per acre of of wheat well it didn't it, you it took a million calories of fossil fuels and you know uh, and hydrous ammonia or whatever it is uh, roughly speaking to get that yield just with the nitrogen there's also they're also applying phosphorus that's either coming from saskatchewan or africa right uh, or they're, and they're also applying some form of, of potassium typically as well. Right. And, and then they're spraying it, you know, four to nine times with some kind of a, a nerve gas or a insecticide or, an, or something else. And then they're, they're using neon, neonicotinoids as seed treatments. And on top of that, you've got to put your, your fossil fuels and your diesel in all your tractors to, to do all your harvesting. So this, this idea that, you know, industrial agriculture is going to feed the world is an absolute joke. It's absolute. There's, there's no, uh, there's no proper accounting uh, or energy auditing that's happening right now within our our current agricultural system. And, uh, and the the bigger our farms get and the more high tech they get, the more inefficient they are. And so, and that's just the production. There's another fellow, like we talked about this in the last conversation we had, uh, I can't remember what his name is, but he wrote an article called the oil we eat. And yeah. uh, in there, he talks about the energy required in food processing and, and transportation. And there, it's like 10 to 1 in terms of calories. It takes 10, 10 times the amount of, it takes 10 calories of energy to process and transport and package our food for every one calorie of energy we produce, our food we produce. Yeah. So it's like we're, we're sitting somewhere between, you know, basically 15 to 20 calories of energy in to one calorie of food out. And, and, and on top of that, we are, we are polluting our aquifers. We're destroying our, our, our riparian and wetland areas. Um, uh, we're creating dead zones out in the oceans and our lakes. All of our fish in Alberta are dying every year. There's, you know, all the, the fish are dying from, from fertilizer runoff. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, all these, these phytoestrogens and, 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 um, uh, and, you know, chemicals that are, that are disrupting our, our, our nervous systems, you know, again, put this into perspective, the, the amount of fertilizer herbicides and pesticides sold in Canada last year is the equivalent of about two kilograms per person in Canada. It's like over 90 million kilograms of, of pesticides were sprayed in Canada last year. Amazing. And, and that number doubles every three to four years. And so it's like, it, it, is it any wonder that, that, everybody's getting sick all, all we're in the middle of a uh you know there's other other scientific research that's showing that that uh we're in the midst of a of our sixth mass extinction event on the planet right now right because, because we're losing particularly in our, our insect species they're all dying and and it's it's all directly back comes back to this this the, the concept of of trying to fight nature right right Wow. 
That was a stinging indictment. Uh, <laughs> so I hate to go political, but we're about to enter another election in this province. And mm-hmm. if you were running in your riding, if you are even running for the premier of this province, what would you do? What would you present in terms of your vision of a permaculture, knowing that you're against incredible opposition? You know, the, there's this, there's this one of the concepts in, in permaculture is, is this idea of um, the like, orders of magnitude or, or the idea of scale. Uh-huh. And if, it, if you think about uh, the, 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 the fractal nature of, of like a river where it's like, it, it, like you, you zoom up on, on a Google earth map, right. you can see, see like it starts out as like a little, little rill up in a, in a mountain somewhere. And then yeah. that rill joins into a Creek and the tree Creek joins into a, a bigger one and that goes into a river and then eventually you're, you're at, you know, like the Mississippi and it, right. it looks like that, that, that forking nature or like lightning. It's this. Yes. Like, yes. Fractal. Fibonacci. It's, it's, yeah. 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 That, so it starts as a tree trunk and it goes into these smaller branches. And so one of the, one of the concepts in permaculture is this idea of, 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 of um, working at the right order of magnitude. Mm. Um, so it's like, if, if a problem's too big, like, if if you're trying to to dam a river or 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 um you know we use it we'll use a dam analogy in a river so if you're trying to dam a river it's much easier to dam the river when it's up in the mountains as a, as a tiny little creek exactly than it is to dam that river when it's the mississippi yeah it's like it's the, just because of the order of magnitude it's they're exponentially more energy and and more information that's flowing through those systems and so right and we have all these, these sayings within our you know, common parlance that, that talk about this is like being out of order mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, 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 you know, working at the wrong, at the wrong level and things like that. Mm-hmm. We know that, that in order to be kind of strategic, we need to, need to work at the right order of magnitude. And, and so, you know, for me, I'm actually, I'm, I'm terribly unpolitical. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I, I didn't right. even vote in the last election. And although I, I'm, 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 I might, might vote in this one. I'm, I'm <laughs> to do my, my research, but my, my personal uh, belief is that, is that these are, these are problems at an, indi- at an individual level. Mm-hmm. Right. And right, they, right. So all of, all of my energy and, and all of the, the work that we do is, is, is devoted to you know, education and community building. One person up, at a time, right? One person at those times up, up in the mountains. Yeah. Um, where you're, where you're making small changes up there that have these cascading ripple effects downstream, and so a beautiful you know, to, image. Yeah. To be honest, I, I have no idea what I would do if, if I was <laughs> a political leader. And and uh, to be honest, I, I don't think they know what they're doing either because they're 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 in in uh, waste. They're in hip waders um, with sandbags trying to dam the Mississippi. Well, I think that's the perfect image. They're like standing in the middle of you know, <laughs> giant flow of the Mississippi, trying yeah. to understand the current. Uh, yeah. I mean, all the metaphors, even you know, the banks and the uh, you know the liquidity and all that stuff that uh, bankers use. And here, yeah. the politicians are trying to discern uh, mm-hmm. what people want, uh, express their own vision. Um, but you're right. I'm, instead of and I think your point is if we were actually in touch with the land again and listened carefully, 
upstream. Yeah. We went upstream. And one of my whole premises is if we actually model the economy after watersheds, we use the watershed yeah. as the geographic boundary of our governance, yeah. we might make different decisions. Absolutely. Uh, we would still we would still achieve hopefully optimum economic well-being, but we would actually mimic the watershed's dynamics and you know whether it's enough tree cover, uh, you know no no externalities called pollution, um, yeah. and we could still have the GDP. Uh, and the other you know the other thing I remind people of is your your description of you know warfare agriculture it wasn't it wasn't until World War One that we introduced income taxes. And it was supposed yep. to be a temporary thing. Yeah. And, and today we we're, we're you know we drown in taxes. Not that taxes are a bad thing, but they were introduced during a war, and the war is long over. And still we, you know, we we give about forty percent of our income to you know to the tax man. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so it's like there's there's all these the so. Another another incredible observation that one of the the uh, um, founders of permaculture uh, realized after watching natural systems for 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 basically his entire life, because yeah. he started out as a, as a naturalist and a, and a marine biologist, <clears throat> but he uh, he had this incredible insight, which is that there there are two things that are not found in non human ecosystems. So basically, if, if there's an ecosystem that's kind of so quote-unquote pristine and doesn't have humans in it there are two things that will not exist within it the first one is is work or, or drudgery yeah and the second one is pollution right right there, there yeah. is there is no such thing as drudgery and there's no such thing as pollution in non-human ecosystems and right and, right and the the reason for that is because because they're they're so they're so efficient and whenever and uh whenever there's an opportunity or, or, or a pollution source that's created. That's a niche that another organism is able to, to come into and take advantage of that. And, and that's why ecosystems are all these, these webs of, of interconnectivity that are so important. And when you pull one organism out, the whole thing can collapse because that one organism was responsible for dealing with, you know, an energy flow through that system that would, will quickly become a pollution because they're not there. And, and so in so you're this is a very profound point because I think even now we we see the uh, the outcome of our monocultures um, and of, of all sorts and yet in in natural dynamic and systems where diversity is is uh, critical to flourishing and resilience mm -hmm. right we 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 actually go against that principle uh, and yet there's organisms, for example, we know that can actually, uh, you know, break down the most toxic of our externalities. Um, Absolutely. But, but if, they're, if the system is overwhelmed by a volume of those externalities, then it, it can't cope. Uh, so, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and so the, you know, Bill's, Bill's main insight was that, that ironically, um, it's in, in, in our um, so pollution stems from work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because, because yeah. humans have, have created this, this concept of like the, the Sisyphean task where it's like mm -hmm. that you can, you can be engaged in, in a niche within an ecosystem that you hate 
<laughs> right, right, right. We, how many and, of us go to work and we, we actually hate what we do? Exactly. We, we hate and, our jobs. You know, how, how, I think it's something like only 13% of Canadians working actually find their work meaningful. Exactly. It's just this stinging indictment that our work is not bringing us meaning. Exactly. And, it's, and, it's pollution. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pollution. And that's, right. and that's exactly, that's exactly what happens. And, and so it, we, um, when, you know, with, when, when farmers started to, to, you know, see their, see their land as, as something they're at war with, they started to hate it. And, and then, and then they it felt like work. And then whenever you, whenever you feel drudgery, it's, it's not a good feeling. And so you try to, you try to get it away. You, you try to offload it onto somebody else. And, and, and that's when you create pollution because now you like, you're not going to, you know, you know, do that the work they used to do by hand anymore. You're going to need a tractor because it, it, it was too much. And, right. and this whole thing just spirals out and it's like you, now you need a, a you know, a, a bigger tractor to pull this thing because it, it feels like too much work. And then, and then you need a, you know, a shed to put all your tractors in and then you need all the, and it just, it, it's the same fractal nature as our river systems, but as opposed to, you know, carrying the lifeblood of the planet, it, it carries all these various externalities that are essentially pollutants and, and, and the whole, the whole thing collapses. And so, you know, one of the, uh, one of my kind of mantras on the farm here is that, is is drudgery is punishment for stupidity (laughs) if you're doing something and it sucks it's because you're stupid and and that's one of the the lead (laughs) the lead measures of turning this stuff around is is farming has to be fun and farming and and, and i think when i when i met you that's what your point was and yeah uh absolutely and work and work must be fun in a sense that brings meaning and what a great philosophy exactly yeah and, and so, um, you know, p- pulling this up into kind of, there's another great quote by David Holmgren, who's the other founder of, of permaculture, is, and that is that, that, you know, traditional agriculture was, was very labor intensive. Mm. And, 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 mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that work component of that, that made it so labor intensive, was what, was what spawned the farmers to turn on a dime and move over to this industrial agriculture because something took that work away from them. Right, 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 right. Made, made that drudgery go away. So traditional agriculture was was very labor intensive. Now modern agriculture is very energy intensive and it's very pollution intensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and per- permaculture, in contrast, is is very design and thought intensive. And and that's the the primary difference is that you'll uh, you'll spend a hundred a hundred hours thinking about how you're going to do a job and one hour doing it as opposed to a hundred hours doing the thing that you spent an hour, you know, scheming together to come up with something. And, mm. and that, that really is very true with, with our farm is that, that, you know, I, I spend an unbelievable amount of time ob- observing and, and, you know, strategizing and coming up with designs and, and, and then I'll go out and I'll test that idea and see if it works. And if, and if it, if it doesn't, um, if it feels like drudgery to me, or if it creates some kind of a, of a pollution that was unintended, I have to go back to the drawing board. Interesting. And, wow. And try to redesign it, and and so that's the whole, the whole essence of permaculture is is that as as farmers, we are essentially a keystone species in our ecosystem. That unlike any other organism, apart from beavers, beavers are about the only ones. Um, but but we were even we're we're 
much better at it than people in that we have the ability to make connections between elements that would have never uh, been possible without our kind of uh, mediation. Yeah, fantastic. Wow. So we're, you know, we're dynamic, agile, all, those, all that language we use. Um, yeah, and we're, and nature is continually, well, continually teaching us, right? And mm-hmm. we're paying attention. Yeah, to the and, 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 that's, and that's the key is like, it's, it's all, always about, you know, assuming that you're wrong. It's like, we've, we've got all these ideas and, and I'm, yeah. I'm wrong, I'm wrong a hundred times for every time that I happen to be right. And I'm, most sure, often, I'm sure, I'm sure. Most, wow. most often the, the, the things that have worked out on our farm have, have had nothing to do with, with me even coming with the design. It was just like, I happened to be at the right place at the right time and saw <laughs> these two things happening. It was like, wow, if I could just find a way to augment that somehow, because it was this emergent, you know, accident that, that just kind of mm-hmm. happened. Um, and so the, it, coming back to like the, even before, before kind of like the traditional kind of agricultural sense, like a lot of the in, in indigenous peoples of North America and, and, and Australia and the Inuit, like they, they were all, um, they were all, they were gardeners more than so than they were farmers. Yes. And they, they were very much interacting with their environment, yeah. but they, they, they weren't fighting it. And that's, that's the, that's the difference is there, you know, there's the Carolinian rainforest in, in the, that's in kind of Ontario and a bit of Quebec is, is one of the, the most diverse ecosystems in Canada and, and arguably in, in North America. Wow. And, and you know, a lot of the, the biologists and anthropologists now believe that that entire rainforest was, was, uh, was planted and, 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 and tended, intended, uh, intended yeah. by indigenous people. Same thing with, with the Amazon. Wow. They, they believe that like the, the number of, of plant species in the Amazon that have human value is is outside of the uh, kind of the statistical probabilities of them happening on their own, and so it's like it only makes sense that that people were actively going around and planting, um, you know, trees and propagating them. And, and and there's really good settler accounts. You know, the first peoples that came to North America that didn't have uh, a bias, um, you know, when they made observations in their diaries, they talked about how the indigenous people were. The, there are many quotes that you know the the North America was was a park. Was, was Absolutely, a, yeah. Was, was one of the adjectives they used to describe the settings is that there was it was like a park like setting with these that it looked like the whole place had been tended to, and wow, and, and it was incredibly uh, productive. There's another book called uh, uh, American Serengeti by Dan Flores, which in my mind really ca- is one book that captures the the incredible productivity. Uh, that can be achieved when a people work with the land rather than against it. And so like there were more buys and at times in North America than there are beef cattle today. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and and nobody, nobody fed them. Nobody hauled them around on tractor trailers. They, they actually that, ran, they say in Edmonton, they, they ran, they carved the Grote road, uh, what looks like a stream tributary, their hooves. Yeah. In yeah. other words, they, they literally ran past your dinner plate. Yeah. Uh, Constantly, well, you know, <laughs> totally, totally. Well, like there, there were there were more there were more uh, passenger pigeons um, than almost as many as there are chickens today. <laughs> in flocks so large that that they would blot out the sun, and and so it's like like the ironically, and this is this crazy part is like we're we're putting we're spending twenty calories of energy to get one calorie of food back. Yeah. And, and every year the system gets less and less complex, less and less diverse and less and less stable. Wow. 
versus when we work with the land, every year it gets more complex, more stable, um, more diverse. And, and, and this is another, you know, time I like to talk about nutrient density is, is that, you know, the, the, the world health organization, if you go to their website, um, they, they claim that 90 to hundred percent of, of, uh, adults worldwide have cavities and 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 60 to 90 percent of school-aged children's worldwide have have cavities right the, the, the interesting thing is that cavities are actually a disease cavities are cavities are, are classi- classified as a as a degenerative disease it's it's literally your body rotting because wow it, because it doesn't have the right nutrients to um, to, to heal and maintain itself. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a incredible dentist in the, uh, Cleveland in the 1930s. His name is Dr. Weston A. Price. And he, went oh, yeah, around, Price yeah, yeah. he went all around the world for 10 years and he studied indigenous cultures before they got overrun by the displacing foods of agriculture. And he documented how many cavities they had on their traditional diets versus the cities and the, or the towns and the next side of the mountains or the next side of the river that had had already been reached by the roads that brought in the foods. And he found that the cavities would go up, you know, 40 to a hundred percent. Like they would go from less than 1% to 40 or 50% in in terms of the the number of cavities. And and now, now we're at, uh, you know, 60 to a hundred percent of people in the world. And, and and the, the next stage of that is, is if you eat, if you don't eat the right foods, that don't have the right nutrients for your body to build itself. You, the the next problem you you get into is physical degeneration, uh-huh. which, which is is that your your body starts to literally become de- deformed. So I had braces, and and braces are um, the crowded teeth are a physical deformity. Wow. Difficult difficult childbirth is a physical deformity. Infertility is a physical deformity. These are all little. They're all all diseases they're all disorders that are caused from a lack of nutrient density in the food that we're eating and and part of it is just we're not eating the right foods but the other part is the foods that we're eating have a fraction of the nutrients that they once did because uh in order for you to have nutrient density you have to have um you have to have a healthy ecosystem for right. your, your food is raised in because you know the, the all the uh mechanisms that are happening in the soil that allow the plants to get the nutrients that they need so that the animals can eat those plants. Um, if you, if you knock out one thing, um, suddenly you, the plant can't get manganese anymore, which means the animals can't get manganese, which means you can't get manganese, which means you can't get pregnant. And, and that's just, there's just, that's just one thing. And, and we are, I used the analogy earlier is like we're, we're little kids that are pulling out blocks in the Jenga tower and, and we're starting to see it, it fall over. And we're seeing that in the health of our people and and in the health of, of our ecosystems. And more than it, like it's, it's my, my entire message is that um, like we are, we are literally eating ourselves and our planet to death. Right. And, and, and one of my favorite words is dis-ease, right? Exactly. We, we have systemic dis-ease and we, we feel it in our in our gut in our spirit and uh it's, it's such a powerful word disease you know it is it is and and so that you know that that class falls over into the you know in the 
we're having all these these mental health issues right now. Mental health is the new kind of buzzword, and it's uh, particularly for farmers. And this is another you know ironic, ironic component to this is that worldwide uh, farmers and tradespeople are are in the have the highest suicide rate of any occupation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're saying that. Yeah, and, and, and in some some places in the world, particularly in India, the the suicide rates are like 25 percent of farmers. Yeah. One in every four farmer kills himself. And in the most common way farmers are killing themselves is by drinking the pesticides that they yeah. spray in the fields. Horrible. So the most common Horrible. way they're killing themselves. And, 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 uh, and, and even, even here in North America, uh, was, there was a presentation at the conference I was at last night. It was, uh, uh, what was it? Seven, in, in North America, again, it's, it's trades and, and farm, farming farmers are, are, are the highest suicide rates of any of any population, and seventy five percent of them, seventy five percent of the people who kill themselves are, are males. Right. And um, so it's it's like there's all these problems. The system is literally falling apart at the seam. And and the and for me, it's like we're, we're eating ourselves and our planet to death, and the only way we can fix that is is by is through food uh-huh. it's like we, we need and in order to have healthy food we need to have healthy ecosystems and they're, they're one and the same so yeah like, so food healthy food is healthy medicine yeah exactly is and, yeah. and, and there's and there's no shortcuts to that it's not going to come through technology it's not going to come through gmos it's not going to come mm-hmm. through ai it's going to come through a deep understanding of of natural systems and how to partner with them uh in ways that increase, you know, biodiversity and thus the nutrient density of our, wow. of our foods. And, and, and that's, that's what permaculture is all about. And it's, it's, it's a, a systemized process that you that it works anywhere in the world. Uh, it gives you, you know, principles and, and steps that you can, you can observe the natural patterns of your area and identify ways that you can basically dance with nature. Well, Cody, that was fantastic. I know we're, we're well over our usual 35 minutes, but uh, <laughs> we'll break it into two parts because there's so much wisdom. There's so much to, uh, you know, and, and hopefully when people are driving down the back roads of Alberta, they're listening to this and they know where to find you. Well, maybe they don't, but we'll make sure they know where to find you. And I think the, last, the first time I met you, I think you were talking about how you're, you know, the best thing can happen is when your neighbors compliment you or ask simply, what are you doing? And, mm-hmm. and they and they become curious in your sort of message. You know, this is going to happen. It's not going to be maybe a political movement, but it's sort of one neighbor at a time. You know, one yeah. bite, one one experience at a time uh, that we're going to get through this trauma. That's you know, as, as kind of result of at least two world wars. Um, yeah. Uh, and wow, what a uh, you know, I usually ask the last question is what gives you hope, but I think you've you've. <laughs> you're you're a 26 year old who who you know decided not to vote which is typical of your age cohort but um i think you're just teaching us a you know a new democracy maybe just uh, people doing things um one person one neighbor at a time absolutely yeah and and you know the, the we unfortunately we didn't get a chance to talk much about the the economy but but the, you know that is one of the the primary drivers Maybe I'll finish with this: is that I I do not uh, I want to make it super clear that I'm, I don't want to demonize any any farmers who are still mm-hmm. no. practicing industrial agriculture. Is that there are 
uh, there are an unbelievable amount of pressures, whether they're social or, or economic or or le- legislative, that are are keeping this this current uh, agricultural system afloat. And and the, in my opinion, the biggest one is is economics. Is that these these farmers have have been dug into loans that are you know if if that oh, the only way they can get insurance right. I mean, is, what, if they, is if it's, what, it's why terrible. would it- why would a farmer ever think about suicide if you love the land? I mean, if you exactly and really and have and, it, you know, yeah. And all all the farmers that I know, I I know a lot of conventional farmers is is that they 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 love their land, they they yeah. love their communities. They like nobody nobody goes out every every any no farmer has ever woken up and said, "How can I destroy the land today?" There's, it's never happened. Right? But they we, we were deceived by these you know these multinational corporations. Are, which our, our governments, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you know, propagated a lot of the false science that allowed it to come into place, and they, they, in my opinion, deliberately created economic systems that that uh, you know in, in, in incentivized farmers to follow this route and eventually trapped them into into these this this death cycle of oh. all these inputs and, and, and a debt and a debt trap, which and, you know, and, whether it's your expensive equipment. So yeah. you're beholden now to the debt, uh, to the bankers, uh, not, you know, I don't, um, not demonizing bankers, but we, we're collectively responsible for what we've created. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for me, the, this is again, why I feel like it's the, the, one of the ways we can get out of this is we don't, we don't have to wait for somebody else to, to, to do something about this. It's like, we can, mm-hmm. we can all start eating the change you want to see in the world today and, and like that's one of the most profound ways, and it's and it's challenging because a lot of consumers are like in, Al- in Alberta, you know, forty six percent of consumers are within two hundred dollars of of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, yeah, yeah. But it's it's like something something's got to give, and and the, it, like if you got two hundred bucks left over, find a local farmer who's, <laughs> who's trying to fight this thing and, and just <laughs> or give him a hug or give me support or or, or try to work with them, but the. Um, yeah, and and hopefully, or at, at the very least, you know, get involved in a group that that is recognizing some of these problems and wants to change it, because yeah, the yeah, yeah. and this is where we start to get further on down the river and things get a little bit harder to to manage because there's a lot more energy there. But that's kind of my goal is is how do we find the people up in the in the top of the watershed and and collect their energy so that we can start blowing through some of these dams that that these multinationals and our governments and our banking systems have built up um over the last 150 years and so it's i've I've, sorry about that um you know permaculture at its core is 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 about revolution but it's it's not about fighting the system it's about making the system obsolete exactly yeah and i i would even temper you to to use the word revolution actually you know what it means it means to revolve back yeah so all you're saying is we're we're revolving back to what was ten thousand years of wisdom at least, right? Yeah. Uh, at a time, so you know we've only I said this has been a B movie, a bad movie for 150 years probably, yeah, uh, or since the Industrial Revolution, uh, and it's not that we can't learn from the wisdom of the past and and modernize it. And you're right, without you know I would say what happened to original intelligence? You know we're rushing into artificial intelligence. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> what happened to common sense? Yeah. And speaking common sense for an hour or so, 
I, I truly value. I mean, it's remarkable. Here you are, 26, and you're speaking such, you know, uh, enlightened and, and uh, plain language. So I want to thank you for this remarkable conversation. And um, I'm sure um, we'll we'll have more of these, I'm sure. I, I, anytime. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to stop recording.